welcome to the Logos Podcast, where world history meets the Word of God. Visit us online at logospodcast.com. And now, here's your host, Andy Anastasopoulos. Hello, everyone. Hello, Radio World. Welcome to Logos, my new, new project. I'm so excited to bring it to you. It is a little bit of a slight different direction. However, it is a lots of lots of fun and I'm so into it. As you know, we are Logos. Now, before we get started, I want to go ahead and uh, share with you a little disclaimer of who I am and what this show is about. So, what is Logos? Logos is about history and what's happening during and what influenced the time pertaining to the Word of God. And by understanding the history, the people, the politics, and the events of biblical times, it will reinforce your understanding of the Bible. So my connection to the Bible and to faith and to Christ is, you know, maybe perhaps because I'm a historian or I'm a history buff. But I feel like I understand it when I understand the times and the places and the people and the things and what have you, the politics. For some reason, I feel like that reinforces my faith. And at the same time, it makes me understand all the things that are happening around. Uh, and so here we are. So I'm combining basically two loves. I'm combining my love for history and my love for my Christian faith. And so here we are. So I hope you enjoy it. Now, our, our uh, topic today is Hellenization and its influences on Judea and the Jews. Okay. And so I'm going to start doing some of my sources to, uh, today are from uh, a book called One Maccabees, which... Uh, for those who don't know, it's considered apocrypha. So what is apocrypha? It is hidden text. Um, it is a, a name given to a group of Jewish writings that date approximately 300 BC to AD 70. Today, the Old Testament apocrypha is a term denoting 13 works contained in the oldest Greek codices of the Old Testament, but not in the Hebrew Bible. Apocrypha does not mean hidden in this sense, but rather to extra canonical documents. Roman Catholics consider these works as deuterocanonical and are included in the Catholic Bible. However, the Protestants and the Jews do not consider them canonical. So this is not an exact passage from the Bible unless you're reading the Catholic Bible. However, it is a part of history and it's a part of Western democracy, Western history running into the uh, Jewish world. And we're going to go ahead and um, talk about that today. So I'm going to open up with a quote. So he advances to the ends of the earth, plundering nation after nation. He assembled very powerful forces and subdued provinces, nations and princes, and they became his tributaries. And this is from 1 Maccabees, chapter 1, verses 3 to 5. So who am I talking about? I'm speaking about Alexander the Great. So for those who know your Greek history, you know who Alexander the Great is. And why are we mentioning him? Because he has a direct influence on, onto the Jewish world, and we're going to see right now why, how that is, and why. So Alexander the Great inherited from his father a large and capable army and planned to conquer Persia, located in the east. In 334 BC, he crossed the Hellene spot with 35,000 men. He attacked the Persian and Greek mercenaries at the river Granicus, which led to the submission of all city-states in Asia Minor. So you have the western world in Greece, you have Asia Minor, leading right into the eastern world, into the Jewish world. Alexander then marched into Syria, Phoenicia, and into Egypt, which gave him full possession of the eastern Mediterranean and strategic control of the sea. 
on the Nile River, Alexander founded the city of Alexandria, which also became a center of science, philosophy, and trade. All important steps, all important reasons. He then moved north to attack Babylon, crossing the Euphrates and Tigris rivers. He again met and defeated Darius, the Persian king, at Guagamela in 331 BC. Darius eventually fled and was murdered by his own generals. When Alexander reached Persopolis, the Persian capital, he burned Xerxes' palace as an act of revenge for the destruction of the Greek Acropolis in 480 BC. Now, those events are connected to Greek history in terms of, um, if you want to learn more about the 300 Spartans, the Battle of Thermopylae, that kind of gives you an idea of what was happening at that time. For this context, just know that Alexander the Great went ahead and burned um, the uh, uh, Xerxes Palace in revenge for, for that. These events also were a pillar that shaped Western democracy. You know, also um, Western democracy as a whole, and then also coming into the Eastern lands. When Darius, with Darius dead, Alexander could legitimately claim the throne of Persia. His empire now extended beyond the Caspian Sea to present-day Afghanistan, Baluchistan, and northern to Bactria and Sogdiania. Alexander crossed the Indus and fought his last great battle on the Hydaspes River against the kingdom of Porus in the Punjab. Alexander's shoulders, uh, soldiers <laughs> mutinied, so he returned to Persia. They just stopped. They said, we're done, enough is enough. So who knows, maybe he could have conquered all the whole world, but you know, we'll never know. But he had most of the known world. In 323 BC, Alexander fell to fever and died that summer. Although Alexander achieved much militarily, he failed to organize his empire, leaving no heir to take over. So this led to, uh, you know, a war between his uh, remaining generals, which we're going to get into right now, and also the influence upon the Jews. Alexander's campaign between 334 and 323 BC quickened the pace of Hellenization. Now, what is Hellenization? It is defined as a Greek influence on other people. Alexander worked hard to unite Greeks with non-Greeks, encouraged intermarriage, founded Hellenistic cities wherever he could, and he settled Greek colonies. This process was felt in Judah. During the 7th century BC, Greek mercenaries served Egyptian masters along the Philistine coast. And in the 5th century BC, Greek trades from Tyre made their appearance at Nehemiah's court in Jerusalem. In the next century, Judah was using coins originating from Attica, which is uh, in Athens. This coin is known as a tetradrachma. It was a Greek coin used and minted by the Ptolemy dynasty. Uh, and it was minted with the likeness of Alexander to celebrate the uh, campaign that Ptolemy shared with his great friend who he shared many battles with. So Ptolemy was uh, the main, uh, probably, uh, it was Alexander's main general, and they were friends, and they, they shared many campaigns together. So uh, also in the east, the, um, the Library of Alexander was also in Egypt under Ptolemaic rule. It is considered the greatest library of the ancient world. Now, the Maccabees were well aware of the Hellenistic world, and we'll go into that in more detail. There was a direct clash between them, the Maccabees, the, that Jewish revolt, and also the Greeks at the time. Judas Maccabeus sent an envoy to Rome, and that is located on 1 Maccabean, uh, verse 8, I mean, chapter 8, verse 17. So, 1 Maccabean, verse, uh, chapter 8, verse 17. 
So Alexander's successor, successors also influenced Judea and the Jews uh, even more. After Alexander's death in 323 BC, his general divided up his empire and fought amongst each other. So all the generals, they fought each other. It was a 50-year war. In the process, they destroyed the prosperity of the great trading ports in Greece. The center of wealth shifted by, to Alexandria, where both Hellenistic and Jewish cultures thrived. So because of all this turmoil uh, in Greece, after they were destroying the kingdom, chopping it up to so many different pieces, the power center shifted over to the Jewish lands. And in those Jewish lands, uh, Hellenism and the Jewish rule thrive greatly. All the wealth shifted to Alexandria. So Alexandria in Egypt, which was ruled by the Ptolemies, which was started by Alexander the Great's first uh, general, his most pr- uh, his favorite general. And yeah, and that, that area started to put in the pillars of the Jewish thought and the Jewish faith, or at least freely at that time. Alexander's influence still remained in 20 or so cities named Alexandria scattered throughout his collapsing empire. Minor changes of names happened in other areas, but Hellenization still remained. However, in Macedonia and Greece, migrating Gallic tribes plundered their way through Greece and into Asia Minor. They created the kingdom of Galatia. Now, Galatia later became a Roman province that is featured in the New Testament as one of its defining chapters. So there's a little bit of history of the book of Galatians for you. After 50 years of war between the generals, Alexander's once united kingdom was divided among them. It was ruled by three main uh, rulers, Antigonus, who ruled Asia Minor, Syria and Palestine, Seleucus, who ruled Mesopotamia and Persia and the eastern borders of India, and Ptolemy ruled Egypt and Libya. And in 301 BC, at the Battle of Ipsus, Seleucus defeated Antigonus and added Asia Minor and Syria to his kingdom. Greek became the common tongue of the uneducated as cities established schools, theaters, Greek temples, gymnasiums, which also we'll get more into next week. Egypt remained under control of the Ptolemies until Rome conquered it in 20 BC. Under the Ptolemaic rule, Alexandria became the greatest trading port in the ancient world and a major center of learning with great library, museums, and communities of scholars, except from taxation and maintained at royal expense. And a lot of those were the uh, the Jews at that time. You know, I wouldn't call them uh, the Pharisees, although it could be part of them. But that was that was kind of like the, the Jewish royal class. The city turned into a multiracial society where the Jewish community uh, could live by their own customs and laws within the city's constitution. So what are we talking about here? So Hellenization through Alexander the Great and then later from his, his uh, generals who were fighting for his kingdom brought the society which was able to let the Jews thrive. So they were able to go ahead and to use the constitution of that time in their, in, in their, um, in their country to help ferment their own civilization with a level of freedom. So that was Hellenization do. So Hellenization was a gateway for quote-unquote freedom for the Jews or at least freedom for religion. The city turned into a multiracial uh, society, as we already said, and since Palestine had been allocated by the Seleucids after the Battle of Ipsus, it was dominated by two great superpowers all of this time. And that also added to the uh, influence of Alexander and the, and, and, the, um, and the generals. So when you have, you know, Palestine that goes from, you know, Antigonus to Seleucus, you're still th- trading all these really rich cultures back and forth, back and forth. 
The influx of multiple cultures and energy accounts to the growth of the Jewish population. By this time, the dispersed Jews out far numbered those living in Palestine. And Hebrew became a dead language. To meet the needs of the Jewish population who could no longer read Hebrew, the Old Testament began to be translated into Greek as so many Jews used the Greek language. All this contributed to the Hellenization of the Jews. Although you have a Jewish population, you have Jewish people who believe in their culture, there came a time where they lost Hebrew. And the only sign of Hebrew for them was in the Old Testament. But now slowly but surely between a different influx of different people and different races and different creeds and, and different rulers, they slowly started losing Hebrew as their language. They knew they were Jews. They were Even though they were Hellenized Jews, which, which basically means that they were Jews with Greek influence. It's like me, for example. I am Greek American. My seed is Greek, but I was born in America. It is the same rule for them. They were Jews, but they were Hellenized. So it was like, in a way... For lack of a better term, they were Greek Jews. So they lose their language, and they don't read in Hebrew anymore. So because of this, the ruling class said, we're going to take your Old Testament, and we're going we're to go ahead and translate it into Greek, since you guys know and speak Greek so much right now, and that way you can be connected to your culture. And so at the same time, this is how the, uh, the original language for the New Testament was Greek. Very similar rules apply, but we'll get into that another time. Anyway, thank you so much for joining me for the inaugural episode of Logos. I'm really excited about this project. I'm looking forward to uh, connecting with you guys every week of a new and exciting topic that bridges Christian roots with history. And I'm going to go through everything. I'm going to go through the politics. I'm going to go through the time. I'm going to go through traditions. I'm going to go through as many influences as possible. Because for me, to understand Christianity... It helps if I understand the, uh, the history as well. Anyway, God bless. I will see you all next week. And have a healthy and happy week. Visit us online at logospodcast.com. 